Well, hey, we're starting a brand new series. It's called SOAP. And the goal of this series is this, is to lead and teach you how to allow God's word to shape your life. How many, how many want God's word to shape your life? How many think that's a good idea? Listen, no matter how young we are in the faith or how new we are into, a faith, into our faith, this is a lifelong quest a lifelong journey. So we're going to use a simple Bible study tool called SOAP to help us uh, lead you through some different passages of scripture over the next couple weeks. This week, I'm going to be laying the foundation for this scripture. And so our text for today is going to come from Romans 10, 17. You can open your Bibles up there. You can flip them, click them, or just watch on the screen, whatever you want to do. Romans 10, 17. Here's what it says. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ. Based on scripture, we know that we can grow in our understanding and in our faith. And it's only done one way. It's by hearing God's word. So based on the scripture, if we want to grow in our understanding, we've got to do it by engaging and hearing God's word. How many of you love God's word in this house today? Here's what Chris and I believe. We believe as your pastors, it is our job not to just feed you on Sunday, but to teach you how to feed yourself. To teach you how to feed yourself. You know, um, in early childhood development, there's like three core things that every child needs to know. How many of you know what those things are? One, every child is the glory of every parent when a child knows how to feed itself. It's the glory of every parent, not really during the learning how to walk process, but when a child learns how to walk and you don't have to carry him everywhere. It's the glory of a parent when a child learns how to deal with their own poop. You know what I'm saying? And it's the same way spiritually as believers, as we're maturing. We've got to learn how to feed ourselves. We've got to learn how to walk in our faith. And we got to learn how to clean up our own mess. Somebody say a good amen to that. How many of you know somebody that needs to learn how to clean up their own mess? Say an amen. amen. Hey, what, how, how many would just be transparent and admit, yeah, at times that person is me. Let's pray as we get ready to dive into the message. God, we love you today. And we thank you for your kindness. God, I pray today as I communicate your word, that you would do what I cannot do, and that is transform hearts. That is to bring revelation into people's hearts and minds, to help them to see things in your word that they could never otherwise see. Holy Spirit, we declare that we need you today. I need you as a communicator, God, and we need you as hearers so that we can be changed. In Jesus' name, somebody say amen. amen. Somebody say amen like you're awake at nine o'clock. So here we go. We're going to tap into this series called Soap. The first thing I notice in your notes when we take a look at God's word, if we want to understand it, we've got to understand the impact of God's word, the impact of God's word. You know, people all over the world, they are in an existential crisis. Here's what I mean by that. It means that simply they're troubled inside and people are searching and they have all kinds of questions and they're asking questions like this. Does God really exist? What is the purpose of my life? Why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? What happens to me after I die? And God's word can answer every single one of these questions. And here's what's so cool. These deep questions that people ask, it leads people to all kinds of places to find the answers to these questions. 
But most often than not, inevitably, every time, it can often lead people to search out the scriptures for the answers to these questions. When I think about the impact of God's word, I'm blown away at this fact that it is the most known book. You know, Matthew 4, 24, 35 says that heaven and earth will disappear, but my words, God says, they're never going to disappear. Why? Because there's going to be people on this earth with deep questions, searching and looking, and God promises these people that my words will never, ever disappear. In fact, from the first moment that I spoke them, God says, my words are here, they are recorded, and they will remain. They will never disappear. Did you know this? Did you know that the Bible is the most read book in the world? Did you know that it is the most recognizable and famous book that has ever been published before? Guinness World Record says it calls it the best-selling book of all time. I like what Charles Spurgeon said. He said this. He said, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and it will defend itself. Do you realize that, church? Do you realize that the word of God is powerful and is, de- is dependable and it can defend itself? Yeah. You know, it's interesting that I see so many Christians running around that have the word of God concerned about so many issues of life, not realizing that the word of God is the greatest defender of all time. You know, over the last several years, I have found that there is so much reliability in the word. See, when you realize how good the good news is, you realize I don't have to defend it. I don't have to get offended when somebody attacks the word because you can't attack a lion. And a lion knows how to defend itself, as Charles Spurgeon says. You know, there have been several attempts throughout history to remove the word of God from society. Some of you have lived throughout some of those times, and you saw some of the beginnings of this. For example, in 1963, when the Supreme Court ruled the ban of prayer and the Bible in schools, or maybe no matter how many courthouses decide to remove the Ten Commandments from their walls, no matter what laws in our time or our children's time come to try to ban the word of God, it will still remain the most famous known book throughout history. Why? Because God promises. We should not get, sorry, uh, sometimes like I say very inappropriate things and what just happened right there is I filtered out something very inappropriate. We should not get ourselves all offended or our underwear all tied up in a wad. That's what I was going to say, but I just said it. We shouldn't get ourselves all messed up over people trying to remove God's word because it's powerful and it's not going to change and it's not going no nowhere, no matter what anybody has to say about it. When we think about the impact of God's word, I'm blown away that it's also in your notes, the most revealing book. It reveals the answers to all of these existential questions that people are searching. They're searching for life. They're searching for Jesus. They just don't know it. Let me ask you a question. If I were to say, I'm going to give you a million dollars today, and you would like that million dollars, just raise your hand real high. I'll take that million dollars, Sean. Come on, everybody play along, play along, play the game. Okay, put your hands out. Okay, next question. If I were to say, hey, you know what? I'll give you a million dollars today, but tomorrow I'll give you $10 million. 
How many of you would love to have that $10 million? Raise your hand and keep your hand up really high. Yes, I'm going to juke you in a moment. Just keep your hand really high. Now, what if I told you that there was a caveat to you receiving that, don't put your hands down, receiving that $10 million. And the caveat is this, that the next day you wake up, actually the next day you will not wake up. You can have that $10 million tomorrow, but you're not going to wake up the next day. How many of you want to keep that $10 million? Raise your hand. And if you don't want to keep it, put your hand down. Where's the rascal? Where's the one guy? The one guy is like, I'll still take the $10 million. You know, nearly every person put their hand down in the room today saying that they actually would choose life over $10 million. If we were convinced that life was so precious and that more importantly, everlasting life was so precious, we would take the word of God more seriously as believers because we know that in God's word, there is eternal life. Do you see the impact of God's word? When I think about the impact of God's word, I'm blown away that it's also the most fulfilling book of all time. I love what Jesus, uh, or what John said in uh, John chapter six, verse 35. These are actually the words of Jesus. Jesus says this, I am the bread of life and whoever comes to me, they're never going to be hungry again. And they're never going to be thirsty again. Why? Because God is so fulfilling. He is the fulfiller. And he chooses to fulfill people today through his word. It is the promise of scripture. And I believe that as believers, if we took scripture seriously, we would be delivering this fulfilling word, not only to ourselves, but to the people around us. I'm laying the foundation of our series that we're calling so. If we're going to understand and allow God's word to shape us, we've got to understand a few things. One, understand the impact of God's word. And secondly, today, we need to understand the interpretation of God's word, the interpretation of God's word. Here's what I mean by this. Here's the reality. Understanding there is a need to interpret God's word is paramount. It's huge. It is massive. And here's why in your notes, because everyone is an interpreter. Every single person, believer and non-believer, you open up the book and you begin to read it, you will begin to interpret it. So because of that, we've got to realize that we come to scripture with our preconceived ideas. We, we bring our pre- preconceived ideas into scripture and it affects what it means to us. In other words, we bring our opinions, we bring our bias into scripture We bring our politic into scripture. We bring our ethnicity into scripture. We bring our age and our gender, and we can go on and on and on and on. And some of these things are a major advantage, and some of them are a major disadvantage. That's why it's so important that we need to interpret scripture and be aware of what we bring to the text when we read it. Did you know that it is possible for you to open up the Bible and misinterpret and get it wrong because of everything inside of you? That is why Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.15, he said, study. Did y'all hear that? We love read the Bible. But he also said, study and show thyself approved to God. A workman who does not need to be ashamed, and they rightly divide the word of truth. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, believers, you should take scripture seriously. 
You should not read it haphazardly. You should be intentional as you read it. And you shouldn't just read, but you should study it. And when you study, you should rightly divide it. Keep everything in the right place where it belongs. Don't put it in the wrong place. We should rightly interpret scripture. Here's a pastoral encouragement for you. If you are wanting to grow as a mature believer, you should not continue just to read the Bible, but you should also learn how to study the Bible. If you agree with me, just nod your head. I'm not asking you if you're doing it right now. I'm just asking you if you agree with me, nod your head. See, we should not pick up the Bible as believers every single, we should pick it up and read it. That's not what I'm saying. But what I, what I am saying is that we also ought to pick it up to study it. And when we do it, we should pick it up with pen and paper in hand, ready to interpret the Bible so that we don't get it wrong. Because I've heard so many people pull so many scriptures out of context, many pastors, and preach them to people. And then people just grab them. They turn around and they parrot them. They have not done their own study themselves. They're just parroting what their pastor says. And here's what I have to say to you. Do your own work. You will not be held accountable for what I say. I'll be held accountable for that. You know what you will be accountable for? For what you said and how you interpreted scripture. Everybody say, mm. That's a little painful. Here's why this is so important. In your notes, everyone is not living in the same covenant era. Now, I'm going to get a little technical here, and I want you to bear with me. It's important. I look across the room, and there's a lot of maturing believers. It's important that we understand this truth. I believe that this truth, covenant eras, is one of the most crucial things to understand as you interpret Scripture. If you don't know this, I promise you, you will interpret Scripture wrong. And you will take these in Scripture that were not meant for you and try to live them out. And then you will also put those things on other believers and expect them to live it out. And you will put them in bondage. Most missteps are taken when it comes to reading the Bible because we don't understand covenant eras. What is a covenant? Simply put, it's, a, it's God's desire and his plan to partner with humans in having a relationship with him. And he has certain rules and requirements around that specific covenant era. So God makes an agreement with people in a covenant. He says, hey, I'm going to do this for you, and I want you to live this way for me. It's a lot like a marriage covenant. You know, a marriage covenant, we say, um, no matter what happens in life, baby, I love you. You look so good today. I don't care if you don't fit in that dress tomorrow, but I promise. Sorry, that was so messed up. And to the guy, she says, I don't care how ugly you get in the future. I promise to love you, to have and to hold you in sickness and in health until death do us part, right? That's the covenant. It's a promise that we make to live together. And so God makes covenants and promises with us just like that. And in the Bible, there are covenants just like a marriage covenant. In fact, that's where we get marriage covenants from. In the Bible, there's, here's, there's two different types of covenants. Somebody say two types of covenants. Ecclesiastes 3 and 3 says this. It says, there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. So God is also saying there's a time and season for one covenant era and there's a time and season for other covenant eras. And with these two types of covenants, I'll briefly mention them. One, there's national covenants 
and there's universal covenants. Here's what a national covenant is. Most of us in this room are very familiar with the old covenant, the Ten Commandments, the covenant that God made with Moses. Every time God makes a covenant, he does it through himself, and he makes it with a particular man. And that man often represents a nation or a people. So Moses, in this case, represented all of the Israelites. So God made a national covenant with the people of Israel. National covenants are not made with humanity. They are made with a particular nation, a group of people. And so when God made the Ten Commandments and made this covenant with Moses on the mountain of Sinai, he made it with Moses for all the people. And that covenant was made directly to those chosen people. The purpose of that covenant was that God wanted the Israelites to stand out from all the surrounding nations and be a lighthouse for the goodness and favor of God, how it rests on his people, no matter how messed up they are. Have you ever, have you ever read the Old Testament? Have you ever read and noticed how jacked up the Israelites were? Just hello, nod your head. They're, they're messed up. They were God's chosen people, no matter how messed up they were. And God wanted to show the world, I will show up and I will continue to show up and I will show my kindness. I will show my grace upon people when they are my covenant people. The second type of covenant is a universal covenant. The, the first covenant, the national covenant, is between God and a particular nation. The second type of covenant is a universal covenant. It's actually still with God and a person, like God and Adam in the garden. You remember that? Yes. And then Adam fell, and, and did it just affect Adam and his family? Or did, did it affect the entire universe and all of humanity? And then God also made another universal covenant with God and Jesus. And that's another covenant that we're mostly familiar with, the new covenant. So God made a covenant with Jesus, called it the new covenant. It was a universal covenant that was for all of humanity. Do you see the difference between the two covenants? One for only a nation, one for all of humanity, the entire, the entire world. Does this mean that we should throw everything out that was in national covenants? No, not at all. But here's what we should understand. It means that we don't look to these old covenants to find salvation. Yeah. Because why? We are not Israel. Yeah, that's right. That was not a covenant that was bound to us. Right. We were not invited into the old covenant. The nation of Israel was. We are invited to a whole different covenant. Why? Because we are born in a different covenant era. We are born after the cross. So because of that, we receive salvation and a relationship with God under this thing called the new covenant. Here's what we need to understand, though. Although we were not born under the old covenant, the old covenant law was not written to us, but it is for us. There are benefits in the old covenant. Here's some of the benefits. It reveals our need for Jesus. And it points us to Christ. It shows us no matter how hard we try to please God and live right and do all of the laws, X, Y, and Z, cross our T's, dot our I's, that we can never live out our best for God. We need salvation. We need deliverance from our old life. And we need the help of God living right inside of us. Why is this important? It's important because we should always ask ourselves when we come to read the scripture, what covenant era was this written in? Every time you open the Bible, we should ask, is this a people under an old covenant 
or a new covenant. Because as God is speaking to these people, if they are written under an old covenant, I should not take X, Y, and Z and bring it into my life to dot my I's and cross my T's about something in the old covenant. Because it was not a covenant that I was invited to. And I should notice, are these people under a new covenant? Covenant relevance is so important because it changes how scripture is applied to us. Let me say that again. Covenant relevance is so important because it changes how scripture is applied to us. That is why we eat pork today. That is why that we don't follow the food and ceremonial and sacrificial laws of the old covenant. And we're not offending God when we don't do those things. That's why we can do that today. One of my Old Testament professors, he said this. He said, the old covenant is oriented towards expectation. In other words, it is preparing the table towards something that is to come. And he said, the new covenant is oriented towards realization. In other words, we realize the things that were expected and told of in the old as we enter into the new Here's what I believe. If you don't read the Old Testament to look for it, to point to Jesus, you're reading it wrong. Yeah, that's right. I should probably say that again. If you don't read the Old Testament looking for it to point to Jesus, you're reading it wrong. That's why I encourage new believers every time they come to the word, read one of the gospel stories, understand who Jesus is. Understand what he's about and now go back into the Old Testament and go ahead and read from the beginning and read through looking how it points to Jesus. I love what Ellie said this week as I was chatting with her and we were talking a little bit about, a little bit about this. Ellie goes, wow, so the, the Old Testament just hints us towards Jesus. And I said, that is exactly right. That is exactly right. In fact, I was on the phone with a friend, and, and a friend of mine goes, man, God really has it out for sheep, you know? And as he was reading through the Bible, and I said, yeah, he does. I said, but the sheep, I told Ellie, the sheep points us to Jesus. All the sacrifice points us to Jesus. And he goes, wow, what a really cool hint. I was like, that's really good, Ellie. We're talking about soap today. Not only if we want to understand a few things about scripture, not only do we need to understand the impact of God's word, the interpretation of God's word, we all should, should understand the incision of God's word, the incision. An incision is what happens when a surgeon goes beyond the surface in the places that are unseen from the outside. When you read the Bible, if you don't study it, it's like staying on the outside. Just reading it at face value. There's nothing wrong with that. God's word is powerful. He can really get a hold of people at face value. But for maturing believers, he's asking us to make an incision in God's word and go beyond the surface into the spaces where new transformation and new revelation will come to you. And as we take this step, we're inviting the Holy Spirit to show us things that we could not see on our own and bring us revelation. So this whole series is called Soap. And so I'm going to go ahead and just really briefly show you what this acronym SOAP means when it comes to us studying God's word. In your notes for the SOAP method, the S stands for scripture. Ta-da! Scripture. Like you already knew that, right? How many of you guys already filled in the blank on scripture? You're like, I already knew that one. Scripture. We should just grab a passage of scripture that we're going to determine to study and read, and we should open the Bible up and read it. 
and read it in a couple different translations so we can wrap our mind around the particular passage we're going to read. For today's example, I'm just going to use John 3.16. We're going to read it in one translation, and here's what it says. For God so loved the world, everybody repeat it after me, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Now, as we have read God's word in your personal Bible study, we would pause and we would pray and we would invite the Holy Spirit into what's about to take place. So Holy Spirit, we just thank you today that as we go beyond the surface of your word and into the depths of your scriptures, that you would reveal yourself and bring revelation to us that we could not find, discover, or see on our own. In Jesus' name, amen. The next step in SOAP is going to be the letter O. The O stands for observation. Now we're going to observe what the scripture has to say. Not what the scripture has to say to me here and now. This is so important. But what does the scripture have to say to the people it was written to then and there. Do you understand the difference? Not here and now, then and there. That's another major mistake that a lot of people take when they read scripture and they're trying to study. So what does it say then and there? So John 3, 16, what is that scripture saying then and there to those people? That writer wrote it for a reason and he had an audience intended for a specific reason. It is going to these people. And so as we make steps to discover some of the answers as we observe this, we would just ask basic questions. How many know the the questions when you're doing any kind of research, right? Who, what, when, where, how, all the things, right? Not high. I don't know how that came out of my mouth. To answer these questions, though, you can often find the answers to these questions in Bible commentaries. For example, BibleGateway.com. You can write that down, BibleGateway.com. There's incredible YouTube videos out there. Not all of them, they're incredible. Not everything you find on the, in, on the internet is, is credible. Hello. Um, but there's a great group out there called The Bible Project. They have incredible books um, on the Bible that are illustrated and give great commentary. So we would go to these commentaries to find out who, what, when, where, why, and how. Here's a, here's a couple. I won't answer all these, but a couple of them. Who wrote the letter? Who's speaking in this passage? Who is the audience? So if you've read, read John at all, you would kind of understand, well, John wrote, most scholars believe he wrote the book of John. We also know that who's speaking in this passage. Well, in this passage, John is writing the words of Jesus as he witnessed Jesus saying these things. Who is he writing it to? He, he's writing it to uh, a man named Nicodemus, right? He's, Jesus is speaking directly to this man. And who is he writing it to? He's writing the gospel narrative just to the people in the surrounding area. We would also probably ask, who is the primary audience? We know the primary audience of the book of John was mostly Jews. And so we know that he's speaking to Jews. We would also ask a really important question that we just spent a lot of time talking about. What covenant are these people under? Does anybody know? I'm not going to ask you to answer out loud, but just answer the question in your mind. What covenant is this Jewish people under as these words are being spoken? Just because it's in the New Testament doesn't mean it's in the New Covenant, right? These are people who are under the Old Covenant still. The New Testament did not begin until the death and resurrection of Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection until the finished work was completely done when Jesus rose from the grave. Then the new covenant emerged. So here's Jesus kind of in between the old and in between the new. It's emerging, and Jesus is saying some mind-blowing things to this guy named Nicodemus. 
I would also look for some key words in the passage. I wouldn't assume that I know what these words actually mean. So I would look for some key words. In our, in our case today, there's multiple key words in this scripture, but for example, we'll pick on the word world. As I look at the word world, and if you look it up in its original translation in Greek, we would notice that this word world is the word kosmos. It's where we get our word cosmos. This word actually, this word actually means, it means the inhabitants of the world. Now, I just need to pause and just kind of expose myself. For years and years and years and years, I read this scripture and thought, oh, God cares about me. He cares about the people. That is what this scripture is about. Yeah, it's partly about that. But this word cosmos actually doesn't just mean the inhabitants of the world. It also includes the order of the world, the universe, and the worldly affairs. Did you know that when God comes back, he not only loves the people, but he loves everything that he created. He loves the cosmos. And in the fall, everything in his creation was touched by the fall. And so God is going to restore everything, the world order, the cosmos, the, hu- the humans in the world. He's going to restore it all because he loves it all. What a gigantic picture that we get when we just do a simple word study. So when we put all of this together in John 3, 16, here's what we know the writer is saying to the people that he's wanting them to read this. Here's what we know Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. He's saying to Nicodemus, he's saying, Nicodemus, I'm declaring to you that things are changing. The way that you have a relationship with God under the old covenant is about to change because my father is introducing something brand new. He actually has a love for the entire world, not just his chosen people. And anybody who calls upon his name to be saved, he will receive eternal life. See, everything you know and understand, Nicodemus, says that anybody who decides to be adopted into this Israelite family by obeying these laws can now be God's children. But God is saying, I'm doing away with that old system and I'm introducing a brand new system and these people can be a part of God's family without all of the laws and rules and regulations. Wow, that is absolutely insane. So now that we have paused and taken time to understand what it meant for them then and there, we go to the next step of SOAP. This next step it stands for the word application. This is where we actually apply it to us. Most people, when they study God's word, they go read it and they apply it directly to them right away without understanding what it meant for the people then and there. You see how dangerous that could be, especially especially if you're reading like Leviticus or Exodus, I mean, you're going to sword up and you are going to just look like an absolute fool for God. So here we go into this application step. And I want us to just prayerfully think through this because now I'm going to ask you to participate with me as we close out the service. In the observation step, we gather what we observed and what it meant for the people then and there. And now we ask Jesus, Jesus, what does this mean for me here and now in light of what it meant for them then and there? And we have to cross something scholars call historical distance. 2,000 years of historical distance through culture and time and ways of thinking and ways of doing things and ways of treating people and all of the different eras of history And here we are 2,000 years later because God's word will never 
disappear. Why? Because he loves you. Because he's got a plan for you. Because he wants to speak life into you and answer the deepest questions you have. So now he invites you to go ahead and ask those questions. And here's some of the questions that you can ask yourself as you apply scripture to yourself. You can ask things like, and by the way, these are in your notes if you have the fill in the blank. If you don't, you could just grab it, grab your phone, go to your notes and uh, ask these questions yourself. How might the Holy Spirit want to transform me in light of this passage? What is God saying to me? What does he want to do in my life today because of this word? We might want to ask ourselves, what would look different in my life if I was transformed according to this? This is an invitation to salvation. This is an invitation to letting go of all things law, all things religion, and falling back into the arms of Jesus and trusting with faith that he's got you and he is your savior. And you can put down all your tools. You've been working so hard to maintain your salvation. And Jesus says, oh, you maintained your salvation under the old covenant law but there is still a lot of grace on my end continuing to keep the Israelites going. He says, you can finally put your tools down and trust in me and rest in my grace for your salvation. So you might say, Holy Spirit, what would my life look like if I actually did that? I mean, what would emerge out of me if I just trusted the Holy Spirit to transform me and do a work? And just, I'm gonna give you 30 seconds to think about that and just write a little note. Imagine what that would look like. Another great question that you might want to ask yourself is what action might the Holy Spirit want me to take in light of this word? He might say, hey, give your life to the Father. He's convinced you. He's spoken to you. He's put faith in you. You you believe. He might say, today, based on what we talked about, he might say, begin making incisions in the word and start devoting some time weekly to studying God's word. And then the the last letter in soap is the letter P. It's the letter P for the word prayer. And when I'm done praying, uh, I like to actually write out a prayer, okay, after I've studied and I've answered some of those questions. And the reason why I write it out is so that I could think thoroughly through what I'm about to say to God. And I like to call it a faith-filled prayer. Here's what a non-faith-filled prayer means. is like... <clears throat> God, I hope, like hope is powerful, right? Sometimes when we say, God, I hope, we're like, we're really not sure, God. And I'm asking you to do this, but I'm really not sure if you're going to do this. So I like to write a prayer that's full of faith. It says, God, I thank you that your word is going to change me. I thank you that your word is going to transform me. 
It is powerful than anything that is being held up in my life. It is powerful than any wrong way that I think, than any wrong action that I take. It can change and transform me in ways that no discipline can do, in ways that no self-help book can do, in ways that no matter how much work I do to try to get this in my life, you can do it in a moment of time. And I pray a prayer like that. So can we pray one of those prayers? God, we thank you for your word today. God, we thank you that it's sharper than any double-edged sword. As believers, we declare and thank you that your word is the most famous book of all time because you said it. And God, you are the most powerful person of all time. God, you are the source of life. God, and you have a desire for all of humanity to participate and enjoy this powerful source of life. And God, I thank you that your word is powerful to save, that all who call upon the name of the Lord can be and will be saved. God, and as we are believers, many in this room, God, we also declare that God, you not only save us, but you keep us saved. God, you maintain our salvation. God, we rest in the power of that truth. We rest in the grace of the new covenant. And God, we are so grateful for your word. And God, no matter how much this culture or any other culture wants to remove the word of God, your word will remain because it is powerful and it is effective. Somebody say amen in this house if you believe me. Amen.